Sadly, the local headlines that dominated the news this week was about yet another trial in the gruesome murders of over 12 years ago. Chris Newsom's parents have been and continue to be faithful followers of Christ who call Beaver Dam Church their home. They were in the early service this morning. They have displayed an amazing commitment and resolve in spite of circumstances the rest of us cannot fathom. And so this week they had to sit and listen yet again to the detailed evidence presented against one of the criminals who stole their son's life. They have experienced personally what most of us only know from hearing the news or watching television. Crime shows abound, both real and imagined, that show us how evidence can be collected and presented in a way in which it can tie a criminal to the crime and usually bring conviction. Technology has made tremendous strides in this field closing countless cold cases over the years because of DNA and other evidence. But evidence is not just important in criminal cases. We use it in other fields as well, even in the field of faith or Christianity. For example, sometimes at Easter we will talk about the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we know that the tomb is empty? Understanding, of course, that that is such a foundational and pivotal doctrine that if we can prove the tomb indeed is empty, then we would expect that people would surely follow in faith in Christ. Or sometimes we look at archaeological evidence. That is, when a, when a dig finds something that corroborates what is said in Scripture, be it the name of someone or a place, And we have further evidence that the Bible that we hold and read is indeed the divinely inspired Word of God because we have these other backups that tell us these things. Sometimes it's empirical evidence, that is, the evidence that we can see and observe, the evidence of our experience. For the last two weeks, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. We began by talking about entrance into the kingdom, striving to answer the question that was asked of Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Of course, we know that that question was asked in a way that would elicit a works answer, but we know that that's not the correct answer, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by our own works. But then last week, we went a step beyond that, and we talked about kingdom living, That is, we come to understand that once we have entered into the kingdom of God and are citizens of His kingdom, that there are now commands and demands upon our lives and our ministry. That is, we have a new king. As part of this kingdom, we have a new king, and it is our responsibility to follow this king. And so we talked about kingdom living. And we also understood in that that it can be deceptive. That is, it is possible for someone to believe they have entered the kingdom and are actually striving to live according to the kingdom while not being part of the kingdom at all. Appearances can indeed be deceiving. After all, the religious leaders that we are going to meet in just a few moments who come to Jesus, they would certainly testify that they thought they were in the kingdom, and certainly by their lives, they were living far and above the normal standard life at that time. They were living righteous lives and would have said that they were part of the kingdom living. Or for example, Paul. Paul acknowledged before his conversion on the Damascus road that according to the law, he was blameless. And in fact, he thought he was doing God's will 
in persecuting and ultimately killing Christians. My point is simply that it is possible to believe you've entered the kingdom, to think that you are living according to the kingdom standards while not being in the kingdom at all. So today I want to talk about evidence of kingdom living. How do we know that we really are part of this kingdom and are living accordingly? We're certainly not going to exhaust this topic. There are many other places we could go in Scripture that will give us evidence of whether or not we are living according to this kingdom, but I'm going to confine myself to the two pieces of evidence that I find in these verses, and we are going to examine our own lives. I want to encourage you to examine your life, not someone else's. We're not pointing fingers at other people to say whether or not we believe they are living according to kingdom standards, but we are looking at ourselves and saying, is there evidence I am part of and living according to the kingdom? So let's talk about Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, that is Jesus and His disciples, He was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, He went to see if He could find anything on it. When He came to it, He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now drop down to verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Two pieces of evidence this morning to see whether or not we are living according to the kingdom, evidence of kingdom living. The first is the bearing of fruit. Jesus said this very plainly elsewhere, you shall know them by their fruit. Fruit, of course, is an agricultural metaphor. A fruit tree gives evidence that it is alive and healthy by the bearing of fruit. Likewise, a believer demonstrates that we are alive in Christ and healthy in that relationship by the bearing of fruit. Now, you notice that I have not only skipped some verses, but I have chopped up our text as well. We skipped the first 11 verses, which is the triumphal entry, 
because we looked at that back in the spring. We jumped ahead in our study of Mark's gospel so that we might coincide our study with the Christian calendar. And so on Palm Sunday, we dealt with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where we have seen Jesus has been heading for the last year or so of His earthly ministry. But in that sermon, we also dealt with what we traditionally call the cleansing of the temple. Though I told you then, it was really not a good title for it. It, It's really the condemnation of the temple. Jesus is not sweeping it clean. He is condemning what is going on in the temple along with the men who are leading them astray. And so we are not going to look at those again this morning since we have already done that. And I've chopped up our text because Mark is once again using the sandwich technique, something that we saw several times but have not seen in a while. That is, he takes a story, in this case the story of the fig tree, and he inserts the condemnation or cleansing of the temple in the middle of the cursing of the fig tree and its explanation. And if you remember, we talked about the fact that Mark is using that to tell us that there is some kind of connection between these two stories. There is a connection between the fig tree and what's going on in Jerusalem, a connection that has tremendous implications for the temple and ultimately for our lives as well. Well, as we open up this text, we are on Monday of Passion Week. Jesus is staying with His friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, in a city outside of Jerusalem about two miles by the name of Bethany. So at least during the first half of Passion Week, His routine is that in the morning, he walks the two miles to Jerusalem, he spends the day in Jerusalem teaching and ministering, and then in the evening, he walks back to Bethany to spend the night, only to do it all over again the next day. And as he walks into town on Monday, he is hungry, and from a distance, he sees a fig tree that appears to have fruit, but when they get closer, no fruit is present. In fact, Mark tells us that this is not the time of year for figs. There should have been no expectation that there was figs on this tree because it was not not the right time of year. Figs were harvested from August to October, so about the time of year that we are in right now. Otherwise, they had leaves on them that would stay throughout the winter that, again, from a distance could look like figs. But finding no fruit on the limbs, Jesus curses the fig tree. That's the word that Peter uses in verse 21. And the curse is that this particular fig tree will never bear fruit again. And with this episode, we are left merely with this ominous note, and His disciples heard it. This cursing of the fig tree is one of the most controversial miracles that Jesus ever performed. It is controversial in part because we call it a destructive miracle, and that seems out of character for Jesus because Jesus was much more inclined to put people back together, to make people whole. So most of His healings and miracles were positive in nature, but not this one. And we also have a hard time with this because of what I've already mentioned, and that is it wasn't the right time of year. So there really should have been no expectation on Jesus' part that there was any fruit on this tree. So some have said Jesus simply got angry. He was hungry. He could not find any fruit. And therefore, he let his anger get the best of him. Now, I certainly can see how you and I might react this way. It is normal for most of us that when we are hungry, we do get grouchier and perhaps angrier as the Snickers commercials continue to remind us. 
but we're certainly not going to lay that on Jesus. This is not a childish temper tantrum. This is not a venting of unrighteous anger. We have seen Jesus venting righteous anger, but that is not what is taking place here. There must be something more involved than physical fruit or the hunger of Jesus. And so here is yet another example where context is so important and an understanding of why Mark would sandwich the cursing of the tree and its explanation with the temple episode. It's a dramatic or an enacted parable. Jesus is doing something out of the ordinary, something extraordinary to draw the attention of the disciples, doing something that will invariably make sure that this episode sticks in their minds for years to come. So just as the fig tree looked from a distance to be alive and bearing fruit, but upon further inspection it did not, so too the religious life of Israel. It looked active and alive. There are thousands of people streaming into Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Many of them are going on into the temple and offering sacrifices. There are images of religion everywhere you look at this particular time. All of the rites, all of the festivals, all of the religious observations, they were all going on. And they were all being led by committed religious leaders who were doing their very best to live according to the law. And yet it was all a facade, a dead faith, rather than a real relationship with God from the heart. It had all of the trappings of outward religion including the temple itself, the very symbol of their beliefs and the very place where God dwelt. And yet the magnificence and the beauty of the temple merely masked the corruption and false security associated with it. And that is what Jesus has come to expose and root out, along with the leaders who were leading the people in the wrong direction, which of course explains why they were intent on killing him which is exactly what they will accomplish by the end of the week. And 40 years later, Jesus will predict this, but 40 years later in A.D. 70, the city itself and the temple are going to be leveled. They are going to be destroyed and be nothing but ruins. Two places that they thought were impregnable. Nobody could ever get into this city and do anything to this temple because this was God's city and this was God's house. And yet, 40 years after this episode, they will be in ruins. You say, what does any of this have to do with us and the topic of bearing fruit? Well, it's a negative warning. Don't be like this. Heed this picture that has far-reaching ramifications. And so the next morning, now Tuesday of Passion Week, they are returning to Jerusalem again from Bethany, and Peter notices the fig tree that Jesus had spoken about, And he calls Jesus' attention to it, saying that it has been withered or dried up at the roots. A statement that is there to tell us the totality of the destruction at its roots. It's not just that the leaves are starting to wither or fall off. This tree overnight has withered at the very source of its strength. It also reminds us of a parable of Jesus, the parable of the sower, That parable tells about a man who cast seed on four different kinds of soil. One of those soils 
was soil on which it began to spring up immediately, but we are told later that as the sun rose, which signifies persecution and obstacles in life, the plant would wither away because it had no roots. And that is exactly what we are seeing here. Jerusalem and all of the religious festivities that were going in on in there had no roots in a real relationship with God. And Jesus has come to expose that. So what does He say to us? Well, the first response might be a bit odd. He says, if we want to bear fruit, we must have faith. And that faith needs to be in God. And again, frankly, this is an odd response. The first thing from His lips and in, in a way of explanation to the cursing of this fig tree is have faith in God. So what does faith in God have to do with a fig tree? Well, the implication seems to be that their faith had been in the system. Their faith had been in the temple. Their faith had been in the rites of religion. The very things that Jesus is now prophesying are going to be destroyed And so he's warning his disciples, when you see that the temple and all of these religious festivities come crashing down, do not allow that to destroy your faith, because your faith was never to be in those things. Your faith was always to be in God, not in religion, not in the rites of religion, certainly not in our works coupled with religion, but faith in God. Faith is the way to God, not the temple. Faith is the way to God, not the sacrifices within it. In fact, we know that Jesus is about to replace those very sacrifices. Those sacrifices are about to come to an end because Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. He is the sacrifice to which all of the other sacrifices had always pointed to. His is the blood that is the blood of the new covenant, the only blood that can take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats could never have taken away sins. They didn't in the Old Testament, and they aren't in the New Testament. They were all pictures of what God was going to do in Christ. So we must have faith in God through the sacrifice of Christ in order to be made right with God. Likewise, he is about to replace the temple. You remember him saying, destroy this temple in three days, or destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. And they thought he was absurd. How is that possible? Herod has been building this temple for decades, and as Jesus is speaking, the temple is still not complete and won't be completed until decades later. And yet Jesus says, tear down this temple, and I'll bring it back in three days. Well, he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. He was talking about the fact that he was going to die and rise again, and that he is the temple. And he goes on to say that we, through faith in him, we become the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Faith is a quiet confidence in the power and the goodness of God, oftentimes in spite of circumstances that might point us in an opposite direction. It is believing God, taking him at his word, and trusting in his power. It is not merely an initial act whereby we come to salvation, and that is what we often think. Because you have to exercise faith in order to be saved, that is the way we often coordinate it. And that certainly is part of it, but what I'm talking about is also an ongoing daily belief in the power and the goodness of God. And we simply cannot bear fruit apart from faith in God. 
We will never bear fruit until we take God at his word and we trust in his power. The second thing we notice about bearing fruit is the priority of prayer. Faith and prayer are integrally related. For if we believe in the power of God, and if we believe in the goodness of God, then we will ask God to work in our lives. That is, if we believe in God's power and God's goodness, we are much more likely to pray and ask God to do something. But if we do not believe in the power of God, or if we do not believe in the goodness of God, or perhaps we don't believe in either one of those things, then we are less likely to pray. And so Jesus tells us here, Another extreme, uh, extraordinary statement. If you have faith, you can move mountains. If you do not, then nothing good will be accomplished. So here's another saying that is exaggerated to make a point. Herod had literally moved mountains for some of his building projects. But that is not what Jesus is telling us to do through prayer. He is not suggesting that we should strive to literally move one mountain from one place to another. This is like the proverbial camel through the eye of the needle that we looked at last week. Moving literal mountains is not the point of prayer. Mountains, both in the Bible and in contemporary society, are often symbolic of difficulties or obstacles. So Jesus is saying that through faith, without doubt, evidenced in prayer, we can see God do great things in our life. And that is a promise, a promise that appears to be all-encompassing. And it is very similar to what Jesus says as part of the Sermon on the Mount. There he says, ask and you shall receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Here it is, if you ask in faith and you believe that you have it even before you receive it, then you will indeed receive it. And you can certainly see how this would take the opportunity for some people to take this out of context and apply it to anything and everything. And if you don't get what you want, then the only explanation must be that you did not have enough faith or that you did not pray often enough. Again, we must ask the question, are the health and wealth gospel preachers correct? Are we limiting God while they are experiencing God? Or are they taking verses like this out of context, or at least failing to compare Scripture with Scripture, and as a result, heaping guilt on people for their supposed lack of faith? Well, in answer to that question, I want to say several things. First of all, I do think that there are times in our lives, perhaps more so than we care to admit, that we do, in fact, limit God. Not that God is not sovereign but we limit God in the sense that we don't ask with persistence, as Jesus taught in several parables, or we don't ask with faith, believing that God is not going to answer our prayers. I think if we're honest, most of us, I really want to say all of us, but I'm going to qualify it by saying most of us, struggle with doubts in the area of our prayer lives. Often believing in the power of God, we know He is able but questioning his desire, especially in our lives. We know he's done it in others, but we're not sure he wants to do it for us. Secondly, I think many of us, when it comes to the topic of prayer, and specifically verses like these that seem to promise unlimited potential, when we come to these verses, we come with skepticism. 
skepticism that is often fueled by our own experience, meaning that we believe we've sincerely tried this in the past. I've been there and done that. There was this issue in my life however many years ago, and I prayed fervently and for a long period of time, and I prayed in faith, and it was not answered. I did not receive that which I was wanting, and therefore, when you read verses like this, you inwardly scoff. Perhaps when I read it a few moments ago, that was your first reaction. You thought back to that prayer request that never got answered, or perhaps you're in the midst of a season like that in your life now. And so you come with skepticism and scoffing because you've not experienced a breakthrough in whatever it is you're asking. And as a result, doubts have quickly begun to replace faith. Thirdly, I do believe there are some limitations to these verses. Not limitations because God is not powerful or because God is not good, but limitations to to other factors due to other factors when we compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, it is not limited to the first 12 disciples as some try to take this. Some say, well, this is a specific case where Jesus spoke to these 12 apostles and they're the only ones who have the opportunity to fulfill this. I don't think it's limited in that narrow sense. But I do think it's limited, first of all, to all believers. In other words, this is a promise for believers, not for unbelievers, And in fact, I think we can limit it more and say it's not just for all believers, but it is for those believers who are active and serious in their belief. Because if your belief is superficial, you're not going to have the faith and you're certainly not going to spend the time in prayer that is called for in these verses. I think we must also state the obvious, the request must be in God's will. And that is not just a disclaimer to get God off the hook. We sometimes treat it like that. We just throw, uh, according to your will, or if it be your will, at the end of our prayers. And then when it's not answered, we say, well, it must not have been God's will. So I'm not trying to get God off the hook here. But I am reminding us that God has not promised to to answer selfish or self-centered prayers. Just because you ask for something selfishly and you do it in faith and you do it in persistence, that does not mean you are going to get what you want. God is going to do for us what is for our good. That is why He is a good God. And frankly, sometimes we struggle with the difference, not knowing what is good for us or is not. There are other places in Scripture which specifically state some things that hinder our prayer life and therefore the answers that we desire. Of course, one would be unrepentant sin. I did not say sin for all of us, sin. But I am saying if there is an area of our life where we are in active rebellion against God, where we know there ought to be some changes in our life and we are refusing to make those changes and repent, then we certainly cannot expect that God is going to give us whatever we ask. James tells us that sometimes we don't get what we ask for because of impure motives. James says you do ask, but the problem is you're asking for selfish reasons to consume it on your own lusts. And so he says God's not going to answer that. And perhaps a surprise hindrance, Peter says, your relationship with your spouse might hinder your prayer life. In other words, if there is something amiss at home, that's going to hinder your prayer life and God answering your prayers. And I'm sure there are others, but I'm simply trying to make the point that this is a good example where we must compare Scripture with Scripture. 
Otherwise, we might come to a wrong interpretation leading to a faulty application and ultimately wrong views of God and therefore our relationship with Him. So bearing fruit means having faith in God, and that faith is expressed in a prayer life with God. Because we believe God to be a God of power and goodness, then we actively seek Him in prayer and ask Him for the things that we desire. But then there is a third aspect. And in fact, where this third aspect is not present, that becomes a hindrance to our prayer. The third thing is forgiveness. Again, something Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is not God forgives me if I forgive others, that somehow I earn the forgiveness of God because I'm so good at forgiving other people. It is not that my forgiveness earns me anything. Instead, it is my gratitude for God's forgiveness of me that leads me in graciousness to be forgiving toward others. After all, we come to realize that our sin against God is far greater than what anybody's done against us. And if God is willing to so forgive us, then we ought to graciously forgive others. Now, as is so often the case, I realize that is easier said than done. That is very easy for me to say from the pulpit. Uh, It's not a problem for me to say, forgive other people. But that is much harder to live out practically. We know it's biblical. We know it's easy to say. But it is much harder to practically live out in our daily lives. But if we're not doing it, If we are consistently failing to forgive and instead becoming bitter and holding grudges, it is a sure sign that we do not understand God's gracious forgiveness of us through Christ and a sign that our prayers will not be answered. A successful prayer life requires both forgiveness of others and faith toward God. And bearing fruit in the kingdom involves all three. A tree does not bear fruit or more fruit By trying harder, the tree does not decide one day, I really need to produce more, and therefore I'm going to really, I'm going to really make a better effort in order to produce more fruit. No, a tree just abides. And that is what Jesus tells us in another part of the gospel. Abide in Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you will abide in me, you can do great things. If you have faith in God, Demonstrate that faith by your prayers toward God, while at the same time forgiving others because of God's forgiveness of you. Well, let's move to our second piece of evidence. The first piece is the bearing of fruit. The second piece is submitting to authority, and I promise that this particular uh, point will be far shorter than the first one. Now, before we get to submitting to authority, you may have noticed, and I need to acknowledge, that we skipped verse 26. Because there is no verse 26 in my version, though there might be in yours, depending on which translation of the Bible you have brought with you this morning. But I've been reading from the ESV, and the ESV does not include verse 26. And those who have been here with us in the past five Wednesday nights know that Brandon has done a tremendous job teaching us what these textural variants are all about. If you do have that verse, you may notice through a cross-reference that it is identical to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 15. So this is not a case where we've taken it out of Mark's gospel because it said something crazy or something unbiblical. It's just because in all likelihood it was not original to Mark and was added later by a scribe in order to make it more parallel with Matthew. So Jesus arrives in the temple yet again. And this time, 
He is confronted by some religious leaders. This is the first of several conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders that all take place in the temple, and they are all parallel to the conflicts we've already seen in chapters 2 and 3 in the north in his Galilean ministry. And they all come down to the issue of authority. Who has it, and where does it come from? Now, I realize today that many people are what we call anti-authoritative. That is, they don't want anyone to have authority over them. I'm not going to say that whole generations are this way. I do not like to categorize whole generations with such wide-sweeping claims. But the truth is that many today are not fond of authority of any kind. And therefore, they insist that they have a right to live their life like they want to and any way they please. And so when I announce this second point... The second evidence for kingdom living is that you must not only bear fruit, but you must submit to authority. You thought to yourself, I'm in trouble because up until this point, I've not submitted to authority because it's my life and I have no desire to submit to authority in the future again because it is my life. The truth of the matter is everybody lives under authority. It's just a matter of what that authority is. For many, the authority is themselves. They deem themselves to be the final authority, so they can do what they want when they want to do it. But what I'm suggesting to you is that for the believer, this can't possibly be accurate. Why? Because the Bible very explicitly says you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. The blood that we've already talked about has purchased you out of sin and into freedom. So you are not yours. You belong to Christ. And therefore, you are not the final authority as a believer in this life. Christ is the authority over us. So God is our ultimate authority, and that is not a bad thing. That is a great thing. Well, the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men, 71 if you count the high priest. They were made up of three groups, the Pharisees, we've seen them often, the Sadducees, we'll actually see them next week, and the scribes. And all three of these groups came together to make up this ruling body, this executive, judicial, and legislative branch all rolled into one of the Jewish nation, a buffer between Rome and the Israelites. So they sent a delegation of all three of these groups to question Jesus about the issue of authority. Not all 71 are here. They've sent some representatives. And so they want to know, by whose authority are you doing these things? And in the immediate context, clearly doing these things refers back to the cleansing of the temple or what we call the condemnation of the temple. What gives you the right or who gives you the right to come into our temple where we believe we really have the authority and tell people that what they're doing is wrong and scatter them? Who do you think you are? But in the broader context of Mark's gospel, we have to acknowledge that it's not just that one episode in the temple. Jesus has been demonstrating and talking about authority right from the beginning of his public ministry. He has already said that he has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to call and eat with sinners. He redefined the Sabbath. He redefined the oral tradition. He said, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. I mean, who says that kind of stuff? And now he's coming into the temple and claiming he has authority over what's going on in the temple. Clearly, Jesus has taught, he has uh, exercised authority, and he has demonstrated authority over demons and all kinds of other creation. So Jesus does what we're not allowed to do in English. 
They ask him a question, and he answers with a question. You remember they used to tell you you can't do that. Never answer a question with a question. Well, Jesus does, and frankly, it was a, a normal technique in that time, especially in debates. But what's unique about Jesus' answer is that he makes his answer contingent upon theirs. You answer my question, and I will answer yours. And so he asked them a question about John. Where did John get his authority? John the baptizer. Did his authority come from heaven or from men? The phrase from heaven is just a substitute from God. You know that the Jews did not like to use the name of God for fear of blasphemy. And so they substituted something like this, from heaven. But he's really saying, where did John get his authority? Did it come from God or did it come from man? And if they answer God, well, then why didn't they follow him? Why didn't they believe him? If they're acknowledging that John's authority came from God, then why didn't they follow him? But if they say from man, then they run the risk of offending the people because the people universally have accepted John as a prophet from God. And so they choose not to answer at all, and thus they don't get an answer from Jesus. Now, what we need to understand here is that Jesus is not trying to be evasive nor secretive. We, we've seen him in the past say, do not talk about me being the Messiah, but those days are gone now. Jesus is not being secretive. He's responding this way because he knows that they've not come seeking the truth. They already in their minds know who has the authority, and it's not Jesus. It is they who have the authority, and Jesus is treading upon their institution and treading upon their property. They're not there to seek truth. They're there to trap him for the purpose of killing him. When honest seekers come asking Jesus questions, he answers them. But these are not honest seekers. And so they demonstrate a lack of courage and a lack of conviction since they can't even answer his question, partly due to their own fear of people because they were more concerned about their positions and about their control than they were about the truth. We, on the other hand, need to recognize that God is the supreme authority in our lives especially for those who profess to be kingdom citizens. There is one sense in which God is in control of everybody's life while we acknowledge that an unbeliever is not going to embrace that. An unbeliever is not going to say, I know God's in control of my life, when in fact He really is. But for us as believers, we need to recognize that truth and gladly and willingly submit to it. Because kingdom entrance and kingdom living means we submit to the authority of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And practically speaking, this means obedience to Him. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. How do you know if you love God? Jesus answered that question. Do you follow His commandments? And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, again, we are not saved by our obedience, but make no mistake about it, evidence of kingdom living involves submitting to Christ, which means obedience to His commands. The truth is that these religious leaders, their problem was not the evidence or lack thereof. The real problem was a problem of their unbelief in their heart. Jesus had clearly done enough and said more than enough to prove that He is who He said He was and that his authority comes from God because he is God. The same might be said of you. The problem may not be a lack of evidence. 
The problem might just be for you that you too are refusing to believe because you don't want to submit to anybody else. And if you can't be honest with yourself about that, then you can't expect Jesus to further reveal himself to you. But what you can do is repent of your self-sufficiency and finally and fully trust Christ for your salvation. And then you get not only kingdom entrance, but you begin kingdom living, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course. None of this is done in our own strength. And then you will be able to look back months or years from now and see that there is indeed evidence in your life for this kingdom living. But what about those who would say that they've been saved for many years now? Is there evidence of kingdom living in your life? Are you bearing fruit to the glory of God? Bearing fruit because you have faith in God, you have a vibrant prayer life with God, and you actively seek to forgive those who offend you. Are you submitting yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, all of which brings glory to God, which is our ultimate purpose? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, which gives us evidence of kingdom living. Let's pray.